This morning I want to return to um, a series of explorations that uh, we started really in the winter. I've been covering different themes the last few months and have been away uh, quite a bit of the time as well. Um, I want to return to the, the series that we got almost halfway through. Uh, that is on, that I, I've called From the Ordinary Habitual Mind to the Buddha Mind. How do we move from our ordinary habitual ways of being towards awakening, towards what we can call the Buddha mind, heart, and body? What does that look like? And Exploring that theme originally came out of some reflections on the stages of development. And I had used at first, uh, you may remember, the lives of the Buddha and our lives, and also the poem by Mary Oliver called The Journey to suggests something like seven stages of the spiritual journey. And the first of these, the first of the stages was taking life for granted and being with our ordinary and habitual mind, heart, minds, hearts, and bodies. And then from there, there was further development, but it led me to reflect on the way that in our practice we continually return to and explore the nature of our ordinary habitual minds, hearts, and bodies. Really, we could say the nature of our conditioning. How we are when we are unawake. And I found that I wanted to clarify what the ordinary but I'm, for, for one of a better phrase, calling the ordinary mind, which is really a stand-in for the ordinary, habitual mind, heart, and body. And I identified 10 different aspects of that, which was like my curriculum for exploring the ordinary mind. And we've already gone through four. And I'll, I'll, I'll remind us what the Ten were, I'm sure there could be more, but I identified ten, which is always a good number. If there were eleven, wouldn't sit so right. Actually, when I did the book, The Engaged Spiritual Life, originally I had eleven chapters, and I didn't call any of the eleven the introduction or the afterward, and so they said, we want ten. And they were the publishers, so they one. Actually, the chapter that lost was on conflict. <laughs> no chapter on conflict. I was conflicted about that, but they had the power. <laughs> so here are the 10. That, and what, what's interesting here is that uh, in all of these, I want to look for what's the ordinary conditioning and what is best we know does um, awakening look like in this dimension? So I looked first at our ordinary thinking, our ways of thinking, and that's particularly in this particular cultural context. I looked secondly at the ordinary ways that we experience our bodies. The third was the ways that we uh, experience our emotions, our heart, we might say, the ordinary conditioning around emotions and the heart. The fourth was the sense of an independent or separate self. And today I'm going to look at our, our sense of time. And I hope we have a good time doing this. <laughs> But I want to explore what is the ordinary conditioning around time. That's in part why I invited us, just as a preliminary way of practicing, to look at 
how we experience the past and the future and how we can in some ways be in the present moment. So I'll come back to that. I'll just name the other ones that we'll look at hopefully sometime in the future. See, once we open up the question of time, there's some playfulness, right? There's some humor, you know, that about all this. There's some sense that there's some uh, mystery here, some interest. So the sixth is looking at uh, how unconscious material drives much of our behavior, much of our lives. The seventh is looking at social conditioning. It's a huge topic that I've condensed just into one, how our ordinary habitual minds have a vast amount of social conditioning. We might think of gender, race, you know, age, all sorts of things, sexual orientation. Uh, the eighth is how we tend to look at the world and see permanent objects out there. Uh, the ninth is looking at our patterns of reactivity or, or dukkha. And the tenth way that there's ordinary conditioning is that we're not in touch with what we might call awakened awareness or the sacred when we're in the, our ordinary minds. And there's a sense that in all of these we can develop and really find different ways of, of being, and that's why we're here. We're here to look carefully at our ordinary conditioning and to transform it so that we move from being unawake to being more awake and at certain moments maybe fully awake. So for, for all of these inquiries I really have uh, three areas that we explore. The first is what's the nature of the ordinary conditioning. The second is what is what is the sense of the Buddha mind seem to be. And thirdly, how do we practice? How do we get there? So that's, that's the structure of what we'll do also uh, today. But I wanted to begin by pointing to something of the mystery of the nature of time. There's something that's mysterious and, and also, as I said, when we look at it, there, it can, we can have fun with it. It can be some humor. We can have a good time. Um, this is from the writer Jorge Luis Borges. He said, time is the substance I am made of. Time is a river which sweeps me along, but I am the river it is a tiger that devours me, but I am the tiger. It is a fire that consumes me, but I am the fire. So we have a very ordinary way of looking at time or being with time, with past, present, and future, but it is mysterious. When we look to what might, we might see as some of our most uh, precious, valuable experiences, often they may seem to be timeless, for we may not have a sense of time. You know, at moments of deep connection with another, we may have no sense of time, right? In fact, we may think of those times as uh, timeless in a way. And we may try to remember those timeless moments, which is, of course, placing them in time. We may have photographs of these wonderful moments out of time, which are captured as memories in time. It's mysterious, right? And we, we do this. Uh, we use the structure of time to remember the timeless. And we may have some of those experiences that, that we've explored a number of times here, 
that we sometimes call flow experiences, where there may be not much sense of time. And again, those might be our, some of our most valuable experiences when we're fully with the earth, with the forest, with the mountains. We may move into a sense of timelessness, again, with people we're close to, or in certain kinds of creativity. There can be that sense of timelessness. And we can enter into mysterious aspects, maybe where we even have a sense of um, connecting in a mysterious way with what might happen in the future, even a sense sometimes of precognition, perhaps. You know, I was thinking uh, a quote that I've used sometimes here comes from uh, a friend's book on the psychological and spiritual dimension of sports. It's called Playing in the Zone by Andrew Cooper. And he quotes uh, the great uh, basketball player, Bill Russell, who came from the Bay Area. And Bill Russell said that sometimes in a game, things would slow down. He would see everything in slow motion. And he'd often have a sense, I know where the ball is coming. Right? There'd be a sense of entering into a kind of a mystery. Right? And he said he never talked about it and he never told his teammates because he thought it would break the spell in some way. But there are those kind of reports that we have. So there's, there's something mysterious, I'll just say at the beginning, about time. And there's also this very conventional sense of time that we have with past, present, and future. We may have the subjective experience of it moving slowly or moving quickly and so forth, but we have generally that grid of past, present, and future. And we tend to think this is the way reality is, that doesn't reality have an objective structure of time? We tend to think that, right? We tend to think that's in the nature of the makeup of the universe. We have a sense that we are in time, that we are born, we die. We tend to think, even though we know that, we tend often to think, not really consciously, that we are permanent and that things are more or less permanent even though we know that they're not. So it's interesting that we may tend to assume we're permanent and tend to, think that, tend to assume that things are permanent, but we also, from another perspective, know that we're not permanent, of course. Again, sometimes here, I ask people to raise their hands if they know that they, if they, know that they will die. Generally, I don't get more than 50% of the hands going up. <laughs> which gets into other territory. But, um, so there's something that we, we may have a clear sense of being in time, but some of us doesn't get it, some of us gets it. There's internal, in other words, a certain internal confusion or misunderstanding even that's part of our sense of time. So that ordinary sense of time, there's past, present, and future, that we persist over time, and that our sense of time is linked with a notion of self, which exists in time and persists over time. Our thinking and our perception is based on rec recognizing forms and concepts which we only know because we learned them in the past. So our very thinking and our very perception is based on, uh, is based on time. It's, it's structured in time. And we'll see one of the ways that we practice is that we learn how to, in meditative training, go outside of the usual conceptualization of the world. We learn how to 
experience increasingly non-conceptually. And that can, that can also lead us to an exploration of time. So that ordinary sense of things, there we are in time, we act so as to bring about things that we want to happen in the future. You know? We act, we work with an agreed upon sense of time. Sometimes we worry about time. I wasn't sure how the traffic would be and whether I would get here on time this morning to give my talk on time. So, and uh, that's interesting, right? So we, we work a lot with the uh, construction of time to make things happen. And of course, we're very deeply influenced by many things that have happened in the past, both good things and difficult things. If we have had difficult things happen in the past, they influence us very much uh, in the present moment. If we have trauma or developmental wounds, we can feel the past. Some of you may remember a quote from the novelist William Faulkner. He said, the past is not dead. The past isn't even past. And clearly, the way we use time is very, very useful. We coordinated things and depended upon everyone having a well-worked-out sense of time in order to meet this morning. Without that construction of time, Spirit Rock would not occur in a very efficient way. If I just said, We'll be meeting on Wednesday morning. See you there. That's some indication of time, but not so precise. So we work often with a very precise sense of time, and it's very, very useful. And some cultures are less precise, right? I remember going to um, a potlatch in uh, British Columbia uh, what they call First Nations there, rather than Native Americans, and a three-day potlatch, and it didn't really have a beginning time and didn't have an ending time. People more or less gathered sometime in the afternoon, and it started when it started. Right? And it finished when it finished, which was generally around three in the morning. Right? It was interesting. I mean, people got tired, so it was maybe more about the rhythms. But was, so different cultures have different ways of constructing time, right, that are, that are quite different. I mean, it's a, it's a common phrase that I've heard of people living on Indian time, right? You've probably heard that phrase. It's also uh, interesting to look at time more as a construction. It's a useful, it's a highly useful construction. And of course, what happens is that we don't realize that it's a construction. We think that it's real. We think that it's, it's the nature of reality. It's a construction and it's highly useful. So children have to learn the construction of time. And they don't seem to fully learn the construction of time until they're about eight years old. You know, that they begin to learn, have a sense of time when they're maybe one or two years old, but it's only a rudimentary sense. And uh, it develops uh, much later than the sense of self develops. Sense of self seems to develop with, with, in connection with what the psychologists call representational thinking. Starts to occur maybe at two years old when the thinking process has developed to a certain point. But the sense of time with a beginning, middle, and end isn't there for a few more years. And then a sense of uh, 
being able to place things in time, like this happened this year, that year, this happened then, doesn't seem to occur until children are about eight years old. One person, one uh, teacher of mine, who works sometimes with um, giving, uh, working with uh, children who've uh, been abused, say that's one of the problems when they have uh, hearings or trials, is that children don't have a clear sense if something happened when they were four or five years old. They don't have a fully developed sense of time, and so they can't really, they can't testify in court in the way that the, the uh, what the prosecutors want them to, right? So it's actually not a good situation, right? And so there is that sense of uh, construction of time which occurs that, but in many ways, children, as we know, are uh, often in a timeless realm, especially younger children. And so that's often been, you know, a model for people who want to engage in spiritual practice, be like little children, what Jesus said, right? right? So that's part in terms of forgetting some of the constructions of time. So we learn as children all sorts of things and we get initiated into a world of time and it is a construction. It's a kind of construction and extremely useful so what are the, uh, the problems are that we forget that it's a construction and also that our preoccupation with time and our full immersion in the conventional notion of time obscures the deeper nature of our being. Those are the two main problems with the ordinary sense of time. We take it as fully real, we forget that it's a construction. Of course, no one told us that it's a construction because they didn't know it was a construction. Going back in time. <laughs> so I'm hoping to arouse a sense of mystery and playfulness and exploration, you know, because it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? It's, um, so, so the, our sense of time and living in time may have, if we're always living in time, it's very hard to go to what we might call the timeless dimensions of our being, right? But we enter it through some of the experiences that I was talking about earlier, you know, outside of meditation, when we're with, when we are deeply connected to another being, when there is what we call love or compassion or some of the heart qualities we sometimes open up to the timeless, a sense of timelessness, not by thinking about it, it just occurs, or with beauty, or again, creativity, or like I said, in certain kinds of activities, like sports can, can uh, go into the timeless. You know, marathon runners report time slowing down, right? What kind of things come into slow motion, time is, is shifted. So my, encouragement is going to be that we really explore time in the next week and we'll give some practices. So that's the, that's the first area. What is the ordinary habitual conditioning around time? We probably could say a lot more, but I want to, I'll stay with, what, with that sense of past, present, future, living with that modality and taking it as fundamentally real, that the... Uh, like uh, that Greenwich Mean Time is part of the structure of reality, something like that. So what, does, what is time like for the Buddha? How do, we, how do we even know? Maybe there were a few moments where we had experiences somewhat like the Buddha. And we have memories of those times of timelessness. So we can find in the text, we can find pointers to a way of experiencing 
that seems beyond time and even beyond space as well. And I'm not going to go so much into the relation of time and space, maybe next week, because I think, I think we're going to need another time <laughs> to explore this. Once may not be enough time. We may need more time. This could be a whole uh, comedy act that we work out. <laughs> so, so there seems to be, with the Buddha, something like a kind of timeless awareness that the Buddha lives in. But the Buddha also can be with that kind of awareness and live with the ordinary constructions, but know them as constructions. The same thing with what we've explored earlier when we explored the way that the ordinary sense of self may not be absolute in the way we looked at it. We can explore that and work more even in our moments when we're selfless, we can still have the capacity to work with an ordinary sense of self. Do you know what I mean? So we can, we can actually be in a different mode and the Buddha seemed to be where he would talk to people, use ordinary language around self and ordinary language around time, even though he may not be in the mode where he takes those as ultimately real. So that becomes possible. We'll, we'll, we'll look at that later. So there are passages where the Buddha talks about not abiding in the past, not abiding in the future, but abide in the present moment. And that's a lot of the guidance of our practice, as we know, to abide in the present moment. And he also talks about something which seems to go beyond time. He talks about the deathless. He talks about the unconditioned. And that touching the unconditioned and the deathless is is what brings about awakening, that there's some way that this is experienced and, and brings awakening. There's a, a chant which is often given, which I, I sometimes have mentioned, goes swakato bhagavata dano sanditiko akaliko ehipasiko opanaiko that's in Pali, and he is pointing to these qualities. These are qualities of be being in touch with this deeper nature. And if I would quote these, it's discovered and well-proclaimed by the Buddha, apparent here and now, akaliko, Timeless or immediate, ehipasiko, come and see, opanayako, on, onward leading, pachatangwe ditapo wenyuhiti, experienceable by the wise. So, pointing to that it's possible to have what we would call an experience of the timeless. This is from a Thai teacher, Achan Mahabua. Whatever arises has to vanish. Whatever is true, whatever is a natural principle in of itself won't vanish. In other words, the pure mind won't vanish. Everything of every sort may vanish, but that which knows they're vanishing doesn't vanish. This vanishes, that vanishes, but the one who knows they're vanishing doesn't vanish. It keeps on knowing. So in the Thai forest tradition, this is pointing to what is sometimes called the radiant mind. In other traditions, it would be called pure awareness that is out of time. In fact, in the Tibetan tradition, in the Dzogchen tradition, it's said that there are four dimensions of time. There's past, there's present, there's future, and there's the timeless. It's interesting. And here's one from the Zen tradition, which will be a little bit less straightforward than the others. So, as is the 
want of, of Zen. So listen for this, right? This is from Zen master Dogen, who is basically saying that being itself is of the nature of time. And so he had a, a section in one of his offerings called the time being. He says, time is not separate from you. And as, as you are present, time does not go away. As time is not marked by coming and going, the moment you climb the mountains is the time being right now. If time keeps coming and going, you are the time being right now. You are time, the tiger is time, bamboo is time. If time is annihilated, mountains and oceans are annihilated. As time is not annihilated, mountains and oceans are not annihilated. So I hope that makes things clear. <laughs> but again, he's getting at the mystery. He's, he's saying in a way that everything that we can identify is of the structure of time. One of the persons, one of the great sages, who's more recent, is uh, a teacher from India named, named Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj, who speaks a lot about this timeless aspect and about the nature of time. He says, in your world, everything must have a beginning and an end. So he's talking about the conventional notion of time. If it does not, you call it eternal. In my view, there is no such thing as beginning and end. These are all related to time. Timeless being is entirely in the now. Being and not being alternate, and their reality is momentary. The immutable reality lies beyond space and time. So, again, pointing to a timeless dimension that can be experienced and touched. And maybe we'll see, maybe we'll do some practices next week that can at least open us up to that experience of the timeless. So we have that sense that there is a timeless aspect of our being that is beyond the constructions of time. This is what we get from the Buddha and from you know, many in the tradition. And so we would ask from that perspective, what's the past? And the answer would be, the past is our present moment experience based on memory. Remember the statement by Faulkner, the past is not dead, it's not even past. So I hope that some of this exploration is engendering a little bit of confusion. I don't usually aim for confusion in my talks, but I hope that there may be a little, anyone feeling a little bit disoriented, a little, because that, that can be helpful, that there's a place for that. Not my usual teaching strategy, but sometimes it's helpful. Okay. Um, so what's the future? Something that we imagine in the present moment that will occur and we may act on that basis. So what's the present moment? Is there a present moment? How long is it? So these are just concepts. I think that's the, these are concepts that we use. And, that, and yet the pointer is to what we call the present, which is really another name for saying we're not in the past or the future. It's probably we can identify the present a little bit more by negation than by knowing exactly what it is. Because when we try to pin it down, it's pretty hard to pin down. Some later Buddhists tried to pin it down and they said that everything is occurring Everything is momentary, and they tried to identify how long a moment was. And I, I forget the exact number, but it's a lot in what we call one second. And they actually tried to pin it down. That generally has not been so well received by the mainstream <laughs> of Buddhist teaching. So, okay, 
So how do we practice? You know, and how might we practice in the next uh, week? I think what I really want to encourage is just an examination and an examination of uh, how we experience past, present, and future, how it's extremely useful. You know, I'm even inviting us to have the intention for the future to explore time and in the next week explore time even when you don't have any sense of time. So how do we practice? How, how, and this is probably the, will be the least disorienting because I think our ways of practice can be uh, very concrete. You know, and the, the usual instructions are to be in the present moment and we don't say more what the present moment is, but we say be in the present and notice what's happening. And notice where the mind goes, notice where our habits are. Right? And so our very basic mindfulness practice is the way to explore time. It's the fundamental way to explore time. Try to be in the present moment. Notice when we go to the past. Notice when we go to the future. Notice your own habits. So a lot of it is just noticing. And you know, as I often share here, my own conditioning uh, had a lot of weight on planning. So when I was first meditating, I noticed my planning mind a lot of the time. And it was planning, and, and I think I use planning as a way to find security, you know, which is, many of us do that. And I would, you know, I was a student when I was first meditating, and I would try to, you know, I had a report for a class, and I would sit in meditation, I would notice myself planning it over and over again. This was when I was first meditating, didn't have so much stability of mind. And I was just planning, and it was really interesting. And as I continued to practice, I, I could observe that, that tendency to plan. And later, as my practice went deeper, I could also notice how, in a sense, I wanted to control the future, which, of course, can't be controlled you know, in an ultimate way. That I wanted to control the future, and I could even find there was some anxiety about an uncontrolled future about just being in the presence and letting whatever happens, happen. I could, that wasn't apparent initially, but as I looked more deeply, I found that. It was very interesting. So there was a whole strategy of being safe and getting what I wanted related to my sense of time and the future, right? And how many can relate to that in some way, right? Probably a lot of us, right? So that's, that's what we get to explore as we, as we look more deeply. How do I relate to some, some of our practice is just to explore what is my conditioning. And this we can do by just seeing when the mind goes to the future, when it goes to the past. And we want to do that without, as it were, condemning or judging how we do that. But just notice what, what's the nature of my mind around time? How do I plan? How, how do I remember? When something difficult happens, do I keep going back to it? Right? And of course, many of us do that. And we can notice that. We can just notice how, how time works. And so some of, some of this exploration in our practice can only occur when we're not dominated totally by thinking. This is why we really train to be able to especially be grounded in the body, with the breath, with body sensations, that's a, a tool to help us be out of the domination of what we might call the automatic mind. And to explore time, we have to have some freedom from the automatic mind, or we're just caught in the usual conditioning. This is what our core practice does. We, and so, just following that core practice, being with the breath, notice when the mind goes to the future, notice when it goes to the past. Here, though, we might have, after we've done that, maybe just a few moments of reflection. We notice that we spent some time in the future, 
maybe after you come back, you remember, oh, I was thinking about the future, just reflect maybe for 30 seconds. What was that like? What were the dynamics of going into the future? Maybe very simple, but just to notice that and to reflect, even maybe keep some notes that you can look at later. And uh, same thing if you go to the past, just notice what that's like. How often do you do that? I found when I looked at myself, I was much more affected by going to the future than I didn't go so much to the past, right? I went more to the future. What's your conditioning? What's your pattern? You know, notice notice that, study that, take some, again, take some notes. Um, Again, Getting outside of the conceptual mind is one way to explore. So being with the body more, being with the breath and so forth. Another way of exploring is to notice change. You know, to notice how things seem to arise and pass away. So looking at impermanence is another way to explore how we construct time. Noticing when things arise and when they pass away, we can have a sense of how we don't ordinarily notice that so clearly. And so one of the main practice instructions that the Buddha gave was to notice impermanence, which basically means noticing the arising of things, noticing the staying and changing of things, and noticing the passing away. And we can notice this, especially, you know, some very easy ways to do this is to notice impermanence with sounds, like just be somewhere where there are a lot of sounds and notice how something arises, stays for a while, changes some, passes away, right? Or, you know, be by a place where there's a lot of sounds, or you can do the same thing with body sensations. Just let me focus on body sensations and notice the continual arising, changing, passing away of body sensations. Looking at impermanence closely will be one another way to explore time. So we're partly looking at how we, what our habitual tendencies are around the future, the past. Also noticing impermanence is another way to do that. Notice times, I'm giving a third way to practice, notice times when you don't have any sense of time, when you're more in that sense of flow. You know, and again, there may be a sense, there may be more of that than we realize. I think that's what we have found sometimes in the past when we've explored flow in this gathering that we've, we've uh, found that we can have this sense of uh, just being in the present moment a lot when we're just doing our ordinary work. Maybe we're washing the dishes or taking a walk. We may just very much be in the present moment without a sense of time. So be sensitive to when there is not any sense of time. And you can just maybe just to experience that. And again, maybe after the fact, you can reflect, what was that like? and see if you can open up more to those kind of timeless experiences. Those are a doorway to the deeper sense of timelessness that is, again, from the Buddha and others, taken to be a core nature of our being. These experiences of just being in a timeless way open up those qualities more and more. Those are three ways. I think maybe a fourth way is to is to deliberately touch the timeless, which I'll be, I think I'll, I'll think of bringing that in next time. So it's now time for the end of my talk, <laughs> and I chose a poem with which to end. This is. Uh, a well-known poem, some of you probably know this, from T.S. Eliot, The Four Quartets. And he has a lot there 
on the mystery of time. And as you hear this, I don't think he was well acquainted with Buddhism, but he was he had some acquaintance with some of the uh, medieval mystics who used a very similar language. You can find in Meister Eckhart and others that similar language about the eternal present. You can find that across many traditions. So this is from T.S. Eliot. I'll close with this. Listen for the resonance with what, we, what we've been exploring. Time past and time future, what might have been and what has been, point to one end, which is always present. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. I can only say, there we have been, but I cannot say where, and I cannot say how long, for that is to place it in time. Let me invite you to take a few moments to bring to mind how you might yourself want to explore time in the next week. I gave, I think, three main ways of practicing. One is to just watch the tendency to go into the past or future in mindfulness practice and in just the flow of your daily life, number one. Number two can be with impermanence. Notice beginnings, continuations, changes, endings. And the third is to invite more awareness of experiences where there's more of a sense of being in the flow without much sense of time, to tune into those. So those are three ways that we can explore this. And just ask yourself, which of those might I like to work with? And working with one or two is enough. There might be some other way of practicing that occurs to you, some other way of exploration. So a period now we have for any reflections or questions or observations. Yeah, thank you. I find that that timelessness um, seems to be the real present, even having then and then there. A little closer. Using uh, a time word describe it even. And I find my mind um, complains to me that it's not complete unless I, my mind's desire to control, yeah. my mind's desire to describe it, to change, make a description, mm-hmm. to, to do all the time things with it. Is, mm-hmm. It's, I have a fear that if I don't go through all the mind stuff with it, 
or that that somehow I've just wandered into outer space and may never come back. It's that kind of fear. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to me, and I I know that that somehow is not, I don't have the whole story. Yeah. Yeah, thank, thanks, Elizabeth. I think, I think that's getting at something I mentioned, which is that I think there are, there are a lot of uh, steps in the exploration of time, right? And we may just start to get some sense of uh, what I'm calling being in the flow, which is often without too much sense of time. And I'm, I'm suggesting that we experience this a lot but we maybe haven't uh, called it anything or identified it. Um, so we, at a certain point, can enter more into those kind of flow experiences without much or any sense of time. We may have more at certain periods in our meditation or just in the flow of our lives, more of a sense of the timeless. And that's really uh, valuable and yet, I think I was pointing to the way that I interpreted the Buddha as maybe abiding in a somewhat timeless realm, but from that place, so to speak, and this is all metaphors which don't exactly hold, he could also navigate the constructions of time. But like the sense of timelessness is more what holds him. And so to experience the timeless for a period of time can be disorienting, I think, in the way some of your uh, comments suggest. Do I just drift off somewhere? Right? It can feel like that sometimes. But one of the, the way that we actually practice is that we experience it some, and maybe it gets larger in a protected environment like meditation. And then as, it, as we have some degree of stability with the timeless, we try to find ways, okay, can I wash the dishes with a sense of the timeless? And we start to, you know, again, um, one Tibetan teacher says, first you, get a, first you get a glimpse, number one. Then you get a little bit of stability in meditation, two. Three, then you get more stability in meditation. Four, then you get a lot of stability in meditation. Five, then you start to bring it out into ordinary experience. And that's where you would have that sense you know, of timelessness, but also be able to navigate time. So maybe you, you know, and maybe you would get pretty stable with the timeless and then have a two minute conversation with someone and see if you could do that, right? And that's how the practice is. In some Tibetan monasteries, they do something actually quite like that. They get stable in a sense of the timeless and then they're instructed to, to uh, walk around, do something physical, or have a conversation, and see if they can maintain it, and it's not easy, right? So you go back and forth, but ultimately one can, I mean, I think we, we probably do this in other segments or other parts of our lives, that we know that we're working with a construction, but we still can use it, right? What would be an example of that? Maybe, um, I don't know, anyone think of an easy example? I'm thinking of maybe we know that we're, um, I don't know, imagining a imaginary world with a child, okay? And we can really uh, know that it's entirely imaginary and still interact in that world. And maybe we do that, you know, with theater or with uh, other things like that, that we know that there are kind of constructions, but we can still engage and explore. It can be very valuable. That's, those are the examples that come to mind, that we actually, I think, more than we might realize, uh, know that something is a construction, but we still live according. We know, you know, we know that uh, you know, we hear the, the class begins at 10 and ends at noon, and it could be different, right? We could, it used to be we started at nine and ended at 11 until the traffic got bad, <laughs> right? So we, you know, we know that it's somewhat arbitrary when we meet and how long we meet, right? 
Uh, anyway, that, those are some thoughts. Yeah. That it's, it's kind of back and forth. It's not like you just get in the timeless, get absorbed by it. And, um, but we actually keep going back and forth and learn. We learn how to know better the constructions, but still work with them and be skillful, you know, as best we can. Other reflections, yeah. What do, yeah, I was, um, I didn't have time to <laughs> do the research I wanted. I'm going to bring that in next time, okay? But my, the, the quick sense I have, and some of you may know more than me right now, <coughs> I did, I did re read one essay by a physicist who compared the, view, the views of the Buddha and a Buddhist tradition on time with physics. And I'm going to bring that in more next time. But the, uh, the quick view, or the quick summary is I think, and again I stand to be corrected, is that uh, contemporary physics tends to see time as a construction. Okay, I'll come back, maybe we'll come back next week with something deeper on that. Um, so I think that physics teaches us that uh, time was time was created by the Big Bang and there was no time before the Big Bang and if the Big Bang happened it must have happened at a certain point in time <laughs> <laughs> and therefore there must have <laughs> Thank you. I think I think you'll see that when we look carefully at physics and science, we get into the maybe the same playfulness that we do with uh, looking at uh, Buddhist practice. Yeah, yeah. Like if everything came from the Big Bang, then time was a creation or a construction. But what was there before time? Huh? It's a mystery. It's a mystery, yeah. yeah. So we'll get the, we'll have more of an answer uh, next week. No, um, okay. Years ago, on occasion, I watched Ben Casey, yeah. the, the doctor show, and it started off with um, saying man, woman, life, death, infinity. Yeah. And the description of infinity that I got was that at the current time, November, no, where are we? December 4th, 2019, exists, coexists with December 4th, 2019 BC. Mm -hmm. So all time is the same time. And it, it's, it's, it, it just boggles my mind then, it boggles my mind now, is to think that dinosaurs are actually existing somewhere out there in another time, which is the same time as we are experiencing as humans here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, again, maybe I'll, I'll bring this in. I have, I have someone I know from um, some meditative practices who seems to have the ability you know, which is talked about in literature, to go back in time and to communicate with those who are not alive. You know, and I I'm, you know, I'm, have a somewhat agnostic attitude towards that, but uh, I also am open to that being a possibility. That there, that, because the practice seems to access a kind of timelessness. And then, you know, and certainly the Buddha claimed to, uh, know past lives of his own and know the whole causal sequence, right? So there is mystery here, but I think I want to, I want to emphasize for our practice just the very sort of down-to-earth ways of exploring that I mentioned in those practices, the uh, 
just looking, what's my conditioning about past, present, and future? That's, we can explore. Look at impermanence. Notice when I'm, I do have a relative sense of timelessness, you know, being in the flow, not thinking about time, and so forth. Those are, those are very accessible. And, and, but it is nice to consider these mysterious aspects. They can kind of, I think that, you know, some of us may scoff at it, but some of us it may, may open a little bit, gosh, it really is a mystery which I think can really uh, open our minds and our hearts some. present, yeah. I'll bring in some more of that. That's, that's good in terms of even something like uh, memory is always a construction, often a reconstruction. Right? That's interesting. That, uh, and of course it, it's contested, you know, I mean, at, the, at a social and political level, they're almost sometimes they're like contesting memories. What really happened? What, what's really there? So that's interesting, and uh, you know, yeah, maybe last one. Did you have one too? Okay, two more. Yeah. I'm thinking about the sunset and, and sunrise and mm-hmm. the tides. Um, yeah. So that seems there seems to be I don't know if you want to call it time or rhythm of nature. But yeah. Yeah. Um, but maybe we also map some kind of construction of time onto that natural rhythm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's interesting, looking at those natural rhythms, and of course we have natural rhythms as well. And again, time, you know, the time is very, very useful. Again, we could look to the way different cultures do it, partly to get some insight, but yeah, it's a time, it's it's by, I should just clarify something I didn't say yet. By saying it's a construction, I'm not saying it's arbitrary. That's an important point, which I didn't really bring out in a clear way. By saying something is constructed, there can be uh, good and bad constructions, right? And there can be skillful ways. And, you know, when we have time that, uh, you know, our time maps on to the seasons, we have, you know, a year in a sense is arbitrary, maybe other cultures do it a little differently, but it maps on to natural rhythms, right? So that's, that's an important point we can bring out, that, uh, that uh, the way we construct time can be more or less useful, right? That's interesting. Um, we can have some constructions of time which are not so helpful, and others which are more helpful. Um, yeah, thanks. So. We're getting up to the end of time, so you have the, <laughs> the, the last word. So you, you probably answered this already. Um, I'm kind of wondering about what are the intentions that we're having for in the next week when we're sitting with practices <laughs> of noticing time, whether it's noticing timelessness <laughs> or change. You mentioned three, so kind of, yeah, I'm trying to think what are yeah, I think the, the intention for the practice, as I named, yeah, I think it's mostly to explore and see what's there. You know, see what your own personal tendencies are. Like for me, noticing something that I wouldn't have known before I started meditating, that I plan a lot. I mean, once I looked carefully at my mind, it was obvious, but if you had asked me beforehand, do you plan a lot, I probably would have said normal amount. But in actuality, I'm... Uh, I'm a big planner and I come from a family of planners and I've sometimes joked, my sister has a master's degree in planning <laughs> and makes her living as a health planner with Kaiser. 
and I think it's quite does quite good planning. <laughs> right? So we want to we want to have the intention to explore, just kind of open up the territory. And again, with that sense of mystery and curiosity, what's there? How do I how do I use the future? How do I use the past? What are my patterns? Um, and we can do that in meditation just by noticing when we go to the past, when we go to the future, uh, what, what drives me going to the past or future. You know, uh, sometimes we go to the past because it's something unresolved or has some pain maybe. We want to explore that. What's there when I go to the past? What's there when I go to the future? Um, and again, one way to do that, I don't necessarily encourage taking notes continually through a meditation session, but let's say you do a 20 or 30 minute session. Maybe just, maybe, maybe you take one or two notes during the session, and maybe after the session, you write a few sentences about your experience of time. So you want to keep the integrity of the meditation. So maybe there are a few important insights. You, you pause, write down one or two, but mostly it's to explore. And then, um, Again, with the same thing, if you choose to look at impermanence, you can do that in meditation. Uh, you can do that, maybe you just listen to sounds for a while. And there you're just trying to notice the beginnings, the middle, and the ends. And that's all. And then, and then with, the, with the moments where there might be a sense of flow or the timeless, um, if you notice it while you're in the middle of it, just to stay with it, stay with the present, not to do so much thinking, because generally when we start thinking, that sense of the flow ends, right? Or it, it passes away. So mostly just try to stay with it, and maybe afterwards you can write a, a sentence or two. Take, so I think taking notes is good because we can start to see patterns. So, great, so thank you. Did that get at it? Oh, good enough, yeah. So really the intention to explore, to be curious, and, to, and then to uh, also appreciate the mysterious aspects here. Yeah. Okay, so let's, let's end uh, with, again, coming back to your intention for the next week. How many of you would like to explore uh, time in the next week? Yeah. I'm, glad you, I'm glad you have time for that. <laughs> So stay, you know, stay with, stay with the intention right now. And then we, we close by remembering that we do these explorations, we do this practice for the benefit of ourselves and others, ultimately all others of which we are a part. So, thank you for your uh, kind attention and we'll continue. <laughs>